Staging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. Hello and welcome to another episode of Staging Sound. This is our conference proceedings uh, and it's part two of the first session of the first day of the conference, uh, which was entitled Theatre Through Sound from Mega Musicals to Digital Minutiae. Our last episode we heard SK Shlomo talk about their a particular brand of uh, beatboxing and live looping and storytelling through sound. Today, we're going to hear from composer, arranger, musician, Rebecca Applin, and she's going to be introduced by Millie Taylor. Enjoy the episode. Okay, so um, I'm going to introduce Becky Applin. Becky Applin is a composer, freelance composer, of sound and music for theatre, for radio, for film, um, and for musicals. Um, She has been doing that for about 17 years. But in the middle of that, she's written a PhD, and last year her book was published, and her book is The Composer as Dramatist. Um, So that's all I wanted to say, because you're going to tell us all about your work. Thank you, Millie. Becky Applin. Thank you. Thank you so much and thank you for inviting me. It's so lovely to come and and talk to you today. Um, So, as Millie said, my name's Becky. I'm a musical theatre composer and researcher. And um, I've been a composer, it might be getting on for about 20 years now, you know, Um, having originally trained as a film composer. Musical theatre is my passion, and I mostly work on commissioned musicals, which are small to mid-scale, often lots of family shows, often touring productions, and I work a lot with actor musicians, and um, that's something I'll come back to in a bit. I'm also an academic and a researcher, and my PhD involved creating an analytical model about how we might look at dynamic shaping in musicals, charting their patterns of intensification and release, and also looking at thematic shaping in musicals. And this year, my book was published, The Musical Theatre Composer as Dramatist, and I'm currently working on a book um, which is called Fairy Tales and Musical Theatre. I'm a visiting lecturer in musical theatre at Erdang Academy, um, which is part of City University in London, and also at Goldsmiths College um, on their MA in um, musical theatre writing. So just to put things in context before I get onto the topic I'm going to talk about, I just wanted to give an overview of the kind of composing work that I do. And so I thought I'd just take the example of this year, which has been about an average year. So I've been involved in um, in some way, shape or form in 12 musicals this year, um, nearly all of them with either a children's or an all-age target audience. That's not always the case, but interestingly, it has become increasingly the case that my commissioned musical theatre work is coming from family theatre companies. So I'm going to rattle through a rundown of those just to give an example of of the kind of work I do. So first was By the Light of the Moon. That's a show for very young children, um, which toured theatres, libraries, schools, nurseries, those kinds of venues, um, about a cat who's afraid of the dark and an owl who helps um, him conquer his fears. 
Then I moved on to Wastebusters. So that was a musical commissioned by the Lyric Theatre in Belfast and to tour primary schools in Northern Ireland with an eco-message about reducing, reusing and recycling waste. And then The Worst Princess, which was a more commercial commission from a company called Full House Theatre. And they're a family theatre company who I'm an associate artist with. And this is an adaptation of a picture book that had about a year's worth of R&D before this production and tour. And then on to Rosie and Hugh's Great Big Adventure. So I was the arranger on this show, which was an actor-musician jukebox musical, using the songs of a well-known TV children's songwriter um, in the UK. And then Cautionary Tale, that's a larger scale show that's in development, having been originated um, as a production with British Youth Musical Theatre, which is a company um, in the UK that develop musicals um, with companies of young people. Um, A couple of plays for a company called Whitehorse, which is based in Germany, that teaches English through theatre, and I write the scores for um, most of their short shows. An R&D for a one-man musical with Lamphouse Theatre, And then um, four Christmas shows coming up. So Cinderella, um, I often compose for pantomime um, at Chipping Norton Theatre, which is a 200-seater theatre in the UK. And this year has a cast of eight. Um, Around the World in 80 Days, this is for Bolton Octagon. And I'm the arranger on that show. And my job is to make the backing tracks for their Christmas show. Bolton Octagon's a mid-scale regional theatre in the north of England. And then Peter Pan and Me, a one-man musical for Christmas that will play at um, Luton in England. And Tink is in Town, which is attached to that. It's an audio drop-in experience, which is part of the company's audience building programme um, that plays leading up to Peter Pan and Me. So it's kind of an audio experience being used as marketing and audience development. So that's a bit about my work. The topic that I'd like to talk about today is about locating the source of music in musical theatre. And by this, I mean the literal physical positioning of where the sound source is coming from, particularly as regards the music that, that is not the vocals. So really, for now, I'm talking about the accompaniment to the songs and the underscore and how the locating of that might influence how we perceive or receive the music from a narrative perspective as the audience. And the particular issue that I'd like to highlight is to do with whether or not we can see where the music's coming from, and whether or not its presence is explained narratively. In the golden age of musicals, when theatres had their own in-house bands in orchestra pits underneath the stage, I wish we could go back to that. It was traditional that the sound of accompanying music would be emanating from beneath the physical space of the stage. The actors would rarely ever acknowledge the presence of the orchestra beneath them. The music was just there, it just happened. And there are some um, big West End mega musicals where this is still the case. So one being Wicked, which has some of the band under the stage and some, such as the drums, off in their own secure individual room, linked to the MD and everyone else via cabled means. So we can see the Broadway version of that here on the slide. And in this mode of doing things, we can kind of see the similarities between the geographical locating of sound in a musical or in a mega musical like this and for a film in the cinema. Even though the music is being played live, in the example of a musical such as Wicked, by the time it reaches the PA in the theatre, we wouldn't necessarily know that. 
And I'd like to pick up on this similarity with film music by exploring in everything else I'm going to talk about the notion of diegesis. This is a concept usually discussed with great fervour in relation to film music, but I'm going to go on to suggest that the geographical locating of the music in musical theatre is incredibly important in this regard. The film music scholar Claudia Gordman originally developed the distinction in her seminal work Unheard Melodies between diegetic music, which is narratively part of the world of the characters and the action and issues from a source within their world, versus non-diegetic music, which is the soundtrack that sits behind or on top of or in some way spatio-temporally removed from the action of the world of the show. Now, in regard to musical theatre, there's a big question here about whether the characters are singing diegetically or non-diegetically. But for today, as I said, I'd like to focus um, on the sound source of the accompanying music um, just for now. And I'm going to use examples from some of the musicals that I've worked on to explore this question. I'm curious about two broad angles. First, how do we as an audience interpret the music when the musicians are live? And secondly, how do we interpret the music when it's pre-recorded? So first I'm going to look at live music. Given today's theatre budgets for shows that exist outside the West End and Broadway, I almost never have a live band, except for Panto, which is a live keyboard player and a live drummer. And I think it's interesting that where I do Panto in Chipping Norton, and I believe more widely, the importance of a live band, albeit very small, is really important for the genre. So why is that? What is it about the sound of live musicians that we need for the genre of pantomime? And I would suggest that this is about connection. We need to see the sound source of the music in order to connect with it as a collaborating partner in the story. And in my time there at Chipping Norton, the band has been located in different places in the space. Most often at the foot of the stage, in the actual audience, they're removed from the fantasy world of what is on stage, but they are part of the audience's space. And so we connect to them as if they're on our level. They are one of us, and we connect to them almost like a bridge between us in our world down here, and um, you can't see it there, but the stage in Chipping Norton's actually quite high. So we're down here, and the band are like a conduit through to the world of the characters up there. And another year, which is what you can see um, on, on the right there, um, we had the band Visible, but on stage, so um, suddenly they become part of the diegesis, but actually they're still not in character and have interestingly been framed in all sorts of places in the set, like ship's portholes and castle picture frames. And here you can see he's behind a window of a house. So there's still a level of detached connection between them and the world of the musical. Interestingly, for this year coming, for Cinderella, the band are going to be on stage, but behind a gauze, so that we can either see them or not see them, depending on what we think is narratively helpful. And I'm interested in the nuts and bolts of that question of why it's narratively helpful or not. I had a conversation the other day with the director about Cinderella's solo song, where she needs to feel entirely alone and lonely. 
And he suggested that, in fact, we do need to see the band at that stage because having them visible but distant physically and behind a gauze actually makes Cinderella feel much more lonely than if uh, they were not visible at all. Claudia Gordman um, has spoken of the meta-diegetic, so narration by a secondary narrator. And I wonder if that is the result of the geographical locating of the band as sound source here. Cinderella doesn't play for herself, but there's a kind of onlooker who plays for her, clearly attached to the diegesis, but somehow removed from it too. And I think that also might be what is going on in the other form of live music that I often work with, and that's the world of actor musicianship. So unlike the band in Panto, the idea of actor musicianship is that the actors play in character. Not only can we see the location of the sound source, but it is well and truly part of the diegesis. Although it's not quite as straightforward as that, because there are multiple forms of actor musicianship. And on these shows, there is often much discussion about how integrated into the frame or otherwise those playing instruments are at any point. And what I wonder is, does this change how knowing we think the source of the music is? I wonder whether full integration makes the audience feel like the music is learning about the story at the same pace as the characters as if the sound might be flexible and able to change at any minute, depending on what the characters discover next. And when they're off to the side, is that still the case? Or by a spatial separation of the sound source, do we now think that the music has more pre-knowledge than the characters do? Because they are metadiegetic, and therefore, according to Claudia Gordman, a secondary narrator... Does that give the score of the show narrating status and therefore privileged knowledge in a way that it doesn't when actor musicians are fully in character in the diegesis of the scene? They are diegetic rather than metadiegetic, as in Wind in the Willows, and therefore they have no narrating status or privileged knowledge. So that's live. Uh, moving on to pre-recorded music then. This is by far the most common scenario in the work that I do. So I'd say about 70-80% of the shows I do have backing tracks. People want the effect of orchestrations and arrangements and a big sound, but with budgets for live bands being an impossibility, this is usually the norm um, in the work that I do. So in this scenario, for the most part, the music is totally non-diegetic. And therefore, what do the audience subconsciously believe about the music? Does it take on more of the reception theory ideas of film music? Is it more like a soundtrack that is more backgrounded and we therefore consciously hear it less and focus more on the live sound source, which is the singers? Given that it's entirely removed from the diegesis of the show, has it now got no character at all and becomes more of a mechanical factor? Or does it have a kind of omniscient narrator type role, like a voice of God type role? Do we subconsciously feel like the music is set in stone and knows what is going to happen and is therefore unchangeable? Whereas the actors are left to discover this alone without now having a musical collaborating partner. When I did The Worst Princess earlier this year, the show opened in a large 800-seater house. 
The aesthetic was that of a mega musical sized score, but with a small four-hander cast. In this size of venue, the speakers are multiple and mostly hidden to a similar visibility level, I guess, as the lights. The audience can kind of see them, but they're absorbed into the mechanics of the workings of the theatre. And so does the music also now belong in that space, in this scenario, in a mechanism space, rather than in a narrative diegesis space. Robin Stilwell speaks of the fantastical gap in cinema. He locates fantasy in the space in between what we see and what we hear, and he interprets this as a liminal space. He gives the example, and I quote, One could suggest that in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy's singing is not strictly diegetic, but that her voice meets the non-diegetic orchestra in a meta-diegetic space of longing for a happy place far away. End quote. This seems to be what's happening in a situation such as The Worst Princess. Even though the singing is live, they are not strictly speaking singing diegetically, and their vocals are coming through the same PA as the non-diegetic, very full orchestrations. So does the blending of those things result in a kind of permanent state of meta-diegesis, where the sound is creating a kind of secondary narrating of what we are seeing? That sounds okay, theoretically, but I'm not totally sure, certainly in the context of that show, that that's what we're experiencing. I feel actually like we interpret the sound's emotional source as coming from within the characters, as if the separation from their bodies of the literal sound source coming from the speakers all around the theatre gives it a quality that somehow makes it its own entity as if it's coming from their internal world. In fact, that may be very well what Robin Stilwell is expressing about Dorothy. It's that longing and emotional landscape that becomes the metadiegesis and the moving of the sound quality into larger scale PAs such that you barely hear any of the live sound of their vocals maybe makes this even more pronounced. I'd like to contrast this with a one-man musical I did last year called War of the Worlds on a Budget with, uh, with Lamp House Theatre Company. This is an out-and-out -out comedy where one performer plays every character in the enormous epic of War of the Worlds. The meta-narrative premise being that there was no budget and so everything had to be made from cardboard. The music for this was entirely recorded and an homage to various sci-fi epic soundtracks. What feels entirely different here is a deliberate sense of knowingness in the music in various ways. There were so many questions here that we wrangled over, like how can music be funny? How can the music sound like the on-a-budget aesthetic without just sounding like it's not very good? What ended up um, happening here was an attempt to use recorded music as if it were a collaborating partner like live musicians would be. There's comedy in that. This was helped by the fact that there was a stage manager character who was running around making things happen and visibly being the voice of God narrator over a microphone. So there was a sense that she was in charge of anything that we heard and therefore what music was played. 
This was intensified by techniques such as having a sung sting of the word heat ray, this is just one example, on a hotkey, so that at any point that word might be used, she could trigger it on the hotkey. So you get this sung heat ray kind of at any moment. We had many conversations about whether we needed to explain um, visibly the presence of the soundtrack at the beginning. So, for example, one idea discussed was that the performer says that he just found this old tape and he loads it up and presses play. And uh, that's then the soundtrack kind of takes over. In the end, we scrapped all of that explanation. But what we did do was start the show in this following way. And I wish I had a video to show you how this worked, but um, sadly, it doesn't exist. So the performer tried to build the premise of there being a choir in the background. By coming on stage and singing a bass phrase that was then immediately picked up as recorded in the track, over which he sang a tenor phrase. Again, that pops up in the track and so on for the altos and the sopranos. Basically, a pre-manufactured version of live looping, um, which incidentally he also did a couple of times in the show. And you can see um, the setup of that on the right of this slide. The effect of the choir prompted laughter from the audience from having heard from the performer having heard something um, live to him then consciously noticing that that was suddenly in the track and kind of making him jump. So immediately setting up a relationship between the recorded track and himself live from the very outset. And that's setting up the premise that he can hear and is acknowledging the music that you're hearing too. Somehow, even though it was pre-recorded, there was now established a sense of collaborative partnership between himself and the soundtrack. And that could now carry on in relationship throughout the show. This show's doing um, a large tour now, and so in, in a lot of venues, it uses the PA system of, of whatever venue they are at. But I wonder really if this was a technique that worked best when we saw the speakers. Uh, it first opened at the Union Theatre, which is a fringe theatre in London, and then at the Edinburgh Festival. And in these scenarios, the speakers were on stands framing the performer. That visual cue of seeing the sound source perhaps helped the score to be this partner more so than them in an invisible PA. So most of what I've talked about has arisen from contemporary practice brought about by budgetary practical constraints. But actually, as we can see, there are multiple creative options and it prompts some interesting questions in terms of genre and what the locating of musical sound in musical theatre means in terms of its reception and how both the characters on stage and the audience might engage with its meaning. So in conclusion, and perhaps as a provocation, narratively speaking, does a live sound source make an audience interpret the score more like a collaborating partner than does a recorded sound source? Well, in all of these instances I've talked about, what we're hearing is coming through a PA, whether it's live or pre-recorded. So in a sense, the literal sound source is the same. So does that negate everything I've said? Because actually, in terms of musical quality of sound, it's all the same coming from the same kind of place. I would say definitely not, because I think the relationship between what we hear and what we see changes how we interpret things hugely. And so the spatio-temporal placing of the sound source of the music really matters. Mm -hmm.
you. Really interesting provocation for us to really think deeply about the relationship between sound and music when we're thinking about narrative theatre. Do we have any questions? Yeah, Adrian. Uh, thanks so much for your, for your talk. Um, I'm really interested in that in that thesis that the, the, the source of the sound making you know, might affect how we understand um, the musicians to, to mean and the music to mean uh, in a given production. And I'm wondering, though, if it's not just their placement, but how the musicians themselves behave, what their persona is, how they're relating to the other performers, how they're relating to the audience. I feel I've seen productions where musicians are on stage and integrated, but they might as well be somewhere else because they look super awkward. Um, and, you know, they're just kind of, they're a, a visual prop, but, but nothing else. So I'm wondering if, if there's more to it than just their placement, but how they, how they behave um, and how they interact with um, the whole performance environment. For me, I think that dwells in that realm of the diegesis question. So it's whether or not they are a character in the world, in the diegesis that we are seeing. And if, they're, if we can see them, but they're not part of that world somehow, they're not in character, then I think, I think we locate them more in a narrating kind of situation. But when they're in character, that's when I wonder if it feels like um, they are discovering, along with the other characters in the show, um, and I think there is a real difference and distinction between that about whether they're in character or not and therefore whether they're in their world or whether they're sort of semi in our world um, and if they are semi in our world then that function of the kind of bridge conduit I was talking about I think that then becomes a bit of a thing where we can sort of link with them like in a roundabout way then to the characters whereas I think when they're in character they're sort of just a more direct sort of relationship just thinking about that what do you think about Hades Town? because I'm thinking about how they sometimes they feel like they're in character the musicians sometimes they're like in the background they're very much acknowledged by the actors but then sometimes they're not and like are they learning new things are they just the narrators so I'm just interested in that because I was thinking about that narration versus learning oh wonderful Hades Town is a score I know really well and that I have not seen live so therefore I don't know exactly sort of what that setup is you know more than more than I do but I'm really interested in what you just said about them learning so as if um do they take a kind of Greek chorus almost um yeah it's sort of like they're kind of like the Greek chorus sometimes mm. but the actors will acknowledge like oh these are the musicians mm. and the person who plays Persephone will be like give a hand to these musicians mm. and then they yeah. come up and do a solo. But then sometimes even the actors themselves, it's because the idea is like, we're telling a story that's been told multiple times. Yeah. Sometimes they're like, it, sometimes we don't know, are we like in the live story? Like are the, even the actors themselves learning new things mm. or are they just replaying the same story that they've been doing? Cause that's sort of the idea. Like when he finishes the musical, it's like, Oh, we have to start again. Mm -hmm. And all the musicians get together and they're like, okay, we have to restart the same yeah. story. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. It's another fascinating example of this question of narrating. And so they're the, the characters are when are they narrating and when are they fully immersed in it? And, and that kind of changes and therefore the role of that, of the musicians in that yeah. instance changes as well. I, I sort of have a related question to that that I don't know the answer to is that do we need to establish a theatrical language in that way at the mm. top of a show and then that is the language that we're operating in mm -hmm. or is it okay to keep switching mm -hmm. or are there certain stories and premises because that's got the premise that 
you know, it, it kind of acknowledges that on the nose that that's what they're doing. But then in other ways, actually, does it just cause a, a jar if you change suddenly? Like, I, um, yeah, so that is a conversation that, not in those terms, but it's a conversation that crops up quite a lot in, in making work. Thank you so much. Um, I, I was wondering, you talked a lot about the location of the music and the differences, obviously, between live and pre-recorded. I was wondering to what degree sound design, so I'm sort of bridging to tomorrow as well, yeah. to, to what degree the way in which it is picked up, whether it's live or, or pre-recorded, but what kind of sound qualities, what kind of um, aesthetics are used? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it CD sound, you know, fully formed, very high quality? Is it deliberately, you were talking about this production where you talk about scruffy music, is it, I mean, obviously the way you pick it up, the way you amplify it, the, the, the kinds of uh, decisions you make, even with presets in your in your uh, arrangement software, does that play a role? Does that modify things? Uh, how, how do you think about that? Definitely. I think um, the different approaches to that are also dependent on the aesthetic of the show. So it's like all, all of the collaborating partners in a musical, visuals, um, words, music, sort of all of it, um, all come from those fundamental aesthetics of what, what you're creating. So in War of the Worlds on the Budget, there, there weren't really any recorded sound effects, really, because that um, that would have been too polished then for the aesthetic. So he opens a window, he... Mm, and, then, and then kind of draws attention to, you know, my brilliant sound effects kind of thing. Um, one of the uses of the live looping that he did, actually, was to create the effect of a crowd by sort of mumbling in different characters and, and dogs barking and all this kind of thing. And then kind of that is the um, the soundtrack, um, sound effects-wise, for the rest of that scene. Whereas, so, a show like The Worst Princess, so you've got that much more, like I said, it's sort of like a mega musical aesthetic, but with a small cast. Um, that's all very kind of polished film soundtrack kind of world. And so then it's usually about, I mean, that... That's also my job with that uh, company is then I'm, I'm layering in um, sound design in the QLab file along with the music and it's just all part of the same sort of texture. Uh, Lynn? Yes, uh, thank you so much. I'm really I'm interested in the metadiegetic, I, I'm, forgive me if I'm getting the wrong quote here. I wrote down when you thought about how metadiegetic is the quality of live music having some kind of pre-knowledge and uh, and then sort of looking at the the recorded as as um, not possessing that so that sense of liveness is sort of having a sense of what's what's just about to come, and I, I I'm quite interested in this because I think um, uh, pre-recorded music played again and again and again we could argue stores more knowledge in its use and its play and its replay and its replay and that and that the live is a ostensibly. A, a one-off experience, and uh, uh, and therefore perhaps a you know uh, an instantaneous knowledge-free entity, and looking at it from that kind of sort of sonic materialist perspective of what those sounds are. Um, but, uh, but I'm not disagreeing because I really like it because I know what you mean. There is this quality of live music, so sort of knowing what's coming, and recorded music, and saying of knowing what's been. This is a sense of looking forwardness, prospective quality of live music, which I think is really interesting that you're talking about. And I, and um, 
So I was going to ask, could you say more about that? I completely agree with you, Lynn, and that was the way round I meant it to come across. And I'm sorry if uh, if that didn't come across like that. Because I because I agree with you. I think um, when you've got a pre-recorded soundtrack, there's a sort of a, a feeling that it's fixed, and therefore it knows what's going to happen because. It's yeah, it's got that pre-knowledge. Whereas I felt that it was in those live moments of I, I suppose at its sharpest when you've got in-character integrated actor musicians. That's when maybe it feels at its most on its feet of this could change at any moment because the music's kind of discovering the story alongside the characters, and then there are sort of degrees of separation almost. So from from fully integrated in-character actor musicians to at the side actor musicians to a band that's separated but you know has a bowler hat on to a band that you can't see to pre-recorded feels like there's some kind of line there of distancing and with that distancing do you get a sense that there's more and more of a sense of pre-knowledge and narrating so is it the performance really of, of sound that brings that potentiality to it i think so <laughs> yeah rather than the sound in and of itself yeah it's the it's what you're seeing mm. alongside what you're hearing i think yeah. so that that kind of quality of of liveness but in the context of a musical in character liveness yeah. kind of being even more visceral in that way um if we'd had time i would have asked a question about agency but we don't so <laughs> can we thank becky really very much and um and then we'll go and have coffee <laughs> Thank you.